Well, good morning, everyone. It's a delight for me to be here. I'm so uh, thankful for the opportunity. I've had to be here this weekend and uh, share in the ministry of the Word. And I do bring greetings from Emmaus Bible College in Dubuque, Iowa. And I'm thankful the elders uh, asked me to give just a brief report on uh, Emmaus. And so I'm happy to do that. Appreciate uh, the prayers and the support of Northern Hills Bible Chapel over the years for Emmaus. That has uh, been a a great blessing. And um, I've been serving there for 24 years, and I'm convinced more than ever of how important and strategic a work uh, Emmaus really is. Um, We are seeking to teach students the Word of God and and ground them in the convictions of the authority of the Word of God, um, along with their college studies. And uh, I just think of what is happening at Emmaus compared to your average secular university or college, community college even, where there's such hostility to God and His ways and such pressure, peer pressure, for young people to... Uh, move far away from the Lord. And so I just appreciate our students so much and their heart for the Lord and their desire to grow. Um, I'm teaching a class this semester called Theology Seminar where we discuss some of the hot topics of the day. And I've been so impressed with the students' ability to evaluate things against the, the authority of the Bible and uh, to be able to come to their own convictions about uh, the truth that God has revealed for us uh, in His Word. And so it's uh, just a, it's a wonderful ministry. We, we would uh, really appreciate your ongoing prayers for us. I uh, was able to bring along a few uh, brochures, which will give you um, an idea of some of the different programs that are offered. Every student majors in Bible, but there is many options from computer studies to business to counseling to teacher education and, and many more. So pick up a brochure in the back and, and maybe a sticker that might remind you to, to keep us in prayer. We would certainly appreciate that. We have about 190 students uh, this year. Uh, we're always hoping for a few more, and uh, so we would appreciate your ongoing prayers for us. would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We want to focus um, on verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1, but to give us some of the context... I'd like to begin reading in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, your word is such a gift to us because it reveals the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we thank you for this passage where he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. As we consider this together we pray again that you would open our hearts and our our minds to receive the word of god we pray that the holy spirit would press them uh, these words upon each one of us uh, that we might gladly uh, die to self and follow the lord jesus christ we pray in his name amen when my wife and i were married one of the wedding gifts we received was a subscription to a marriage magazine And so when the first issue arrived, I knew I had lots to learn, so I began to read. But as I read, I soon discovered that the magazine had more to do with self-esteem than marriage. In fact, one of the articles was entitled, Quick Tips to Boost Your Self-Esteem. These were some of the tips. Number one, Think three positive thoughts about yourself before falling asleep at night and before getting out of bed each morning. Number two, see your imperfections as part of your human perfection. Over 26 years later, I still haven't figured that one out. (laughs) Number three, work in harmony with the world by finding it within yourself first. And perhaps my favorite, number four, subscribe to uplifting magazines that will give you tips for feeling good about yourself. (laughs) Well, at that point, I was ready to dismiss the magazine as just a lot of psychobabble, but I decided to read on because you usually find some good sermon illustrations in that kind of material, and here we are. A second article entitled, If I Don't Take Care of Myself, Who Will?, emphasized the importance of not putting the needs of your family before your own needs. The author wrote this, I know a woman who is one of the most self-nurturing people I have ever met and stands as a model in my life. Once for several weeks ahead of her birthday, she selected gifts that she really wanted for herself. She wrapped each one beautifully, and when she woke up on her birthday, she opened up all her presents. Then comes the advice. Find a model in your life of someone who knows how to take care of themselves and start taking lessons. 
The last page of the magazine included a statement uh, articulating the purpose of the publication, and there I found the following conviction. We believe in the necessity of individuality and a solid sense of self. A solid sense of self. Our world is driven by the pursuit of a solid sense of self. Our culture is committed to the celebration of self, of self-interest, self-expression, self-ambition. The reality is that our fallen hearts think that true fulfillment and satisfaction in life will come only as we seek to gratify our self-desires. A number of years ago, actress Shirley MacLaine said this, She wrote, The most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity And that's what I've been trying to do all my life. What a sad statement. The message and the assumption of our world is follow self and it'll lead you to life. But our text this morning provides a radically different perspective. In essence, what Jesus says is this. We must die to self and follow Christ in order to find true life. That's the cost but also the reward of discipleship. Now, in the context of our passage, Peter has just made his great confession in verse 29. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But that was only the first step. In addition to knowing the identity of Jesus, the person of Jesus, The disciples needed to understand why he ultimately came. They needed to understand the nature of his work. And so starting in verse 31, Jesus began to teach them what he would do as the Christ. Peter just confessed, you are the Christ. Okay, Jesus says, this is what I as the Christ need to do for your salvation. He must endure suffering and rejection and death before rising from the dead three days later. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to do these things precisely because he was the Christ, the Messiah. This is why he came into the world, to be their Savior, to take their sin and judgment upon himself so that they could have forgiveness and they could enter into to true life, eternal life. This was the Messiah's work. Now, they didn't understand any of this. In fact... Peter even rebuked Jesus because this was not at all what they expected of the Messiah. They expected the Messiah to to come in and overthrow their enemies and restore glory to Israel and, and give them, the disciples, important positions in the kingdom of God. And Jesus needed to correct their thinking about the Christ and his mission. Since they had a wrong view of Messiahship, it's not surprising that they had a wrong view of discipleship as well. And that's really what Jesus addresses in the, in the section that we want to focus on this morning. 
So that brings us, first of all, to Jesus' terms of discipleship. Look at verse 34 again. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The previous conversation seems to have been a a private one just with his disciples, but you'll notice here in verse 34, Jesus calls the, the people, the crowd, to himself along with the disciples, and he declares, if anyone, if anyone desires to come after me. So this call that Jesus is issuing to die to self and follow Christ isn't just for elite, privileged disciples. It's not just sort of the next step in discipleship. This is not just for teachers and leaders of the church. It is for anyone who would follow Christ, for whoever would follow him. As Jesus sets out the terms of discipleship, he gives three imperatives. I'm using uh, the uh, ESV, and in the ESV it, it has in verse 34, let him, but really it's stronger than that. These are commands, so it might be better to translate, he must, he must. Now, what must he or she do? Well, three things, deny, take up, and follow. First of all, Jesus says he must deny himself. What is self-denial? We usually think of self-denial in our time as the great trial of skipping dessert or foregoing chocolate or ice cream in a heroic effort to shed a few pounds. Trust me, I know the, the struggle is real. But Jesus means far more than that. Commentator Charles Cranfield writes, to deny oneself is to disown not just one's sins, but oneself, to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. So it's not just about giving up chocolate, but it's about giving up on ourselves as lords and submitting our lives to the one who is truly Lord. It's, it's often easy to see self-centeredness in others, uh, to see it in children. But do we see it in ourselves? As Christians, our desire should be for our self-centeredness to increasingly be replaced by a Christ-centeredness. That's really uh, where joy comes from. As we were looking at John the Baptist, again, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. Well, Peter and the disciples' expectations of both Messiahship and discipleship were all wrong. In many ways, their hopes were centered on personal glory, national glory. But it wasn't about them. They had to learn to deny themselves and let Jesus set the agenda. And Jesus' agenda was much better and much greater uh, and much more effective in meeting their true needs. When Simon and Andrew, for example, accepted Jesus' call as described uh, back in chapter 1 and they left their nets to follow Jesus, they, in essence, were accepting Jesus' complete authority uh, over their lives. They, in a sense, abandoned their identity as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and they joined the Lord Jesus, confident in the conviction that to be with him 
was more important than anything else. Now, of course, uh, Jesus would have to develop that conviction in them, but that was uh, that was the call when when they left their nets and followed Jesus. They were convinced, yeah. I need to be with Jesus. I need to follow Him. That's the most important thing I can do. There's a major emphasis today, as we're all very well aware, on people finding their identity and being true to themselves. Very interestingly, we are being pressured to locate the center of our personhood and identity in things like sexuality and gender. And in order to be true to ourselves and to, to, to live authentic lives, meaningful lives, we're told that we must be free to express these things in whatever manner we desire. That's the spirit of the age. I'm sure we all recognize it. It's, it's all around us. But it's tragic when we step back and, and evaluate that. It's tragic how self-deceived we've become. Because this is not freedom. To use the imagery of Romans 6, it's really slavery. It doesn't bring people the peace that they're longing for. It brings bondage to sin. No, our identity in an ultimate sense is not to be found in being true to ourselves. It is as being... Uh, recognizing our identity as creatures who are made in the image of God, created and designed to have our deepest joy and our, our sense of meaning and purpose in following our Creator and living for Him. Sin and pride and idolatry, Paul reminds us in Romans 1, exchange God for the supremacy and exaltation of me. And what's happening is we... We elevate our self and our desires to first place, the place that God should have in our lives. And we wonder, as a culture, why we're so troubled and angry and depressed. Why there's such a lack of fulfillment and peace in our lives. But Jesus came to deliver us from that. But if we're going to be delivered, we need to face the reality that we must deny self. Not be true to self, but deny self. Actually, Jesus goes even further in his second condition. He must take up his cross. What a shocking statement that would have been for those listening to Jesus at this time. What does it mean to take up your cross? For us, of course, the symbol of the cross is is very common. We see the cross on church buildings and on jewelry we might wear. But as James Edwards points out, how vastly different was the symbol of the cross in the first century? An image of extreme repugnance. The cross was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. It was the image of crucifixion. A cruel and vicious manner of execution reserved for slaves and and criminals. Take up your cross? You can imagine the disciples hearing those words. The reality is that bearing our cross, taking up our cross, really speaks of death. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, writes, To take up our cross and follow Jesus is to put oneself into the position of a condemned man on his way to execution. 
For if we are following Jesus with a cross on our shoulder, there is only one place to which we are going, the place of crucifixion. Many of you will be familiar with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a a German Christian who openly criticized Hitler and, and the Nazis. And as a result, he was put in a Nazi concentration camp. Hitler ordered his execution on April the 9th, 1945. And Bonhoeffer was a man who learned much about the cost of discipleship. And in a book with, uh, with that title, he wrote these now famous words. When Christ calls a man, Christ calls a woman, he bids him come and die. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means to take up our cross and follow Christ. We sometimes hear something like, well, we all have our crosses to bear. And what that's supposed to mean is that your crooked teeth or your bad back or your uh, irritating boss or colleague or complicated family situation is just one of the burdens you have to face in this life. But the reality is unbelievers face those same kinds of trials. No, the point is that all Christians bear the same cross, and that is death to self. Now, we should clarify that denying ourselves and taking up our cross doesn't mean an unhealthy kind of self-loathing or loss of personality or, or taking on a martyr complex. No, it's about surrender and death to self-determination, self-reliance, so, so that we put away our selfish independence from the Lord in order to pledge our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that's what frees us to follow Him wholeheartedly. Now that brings us to the third imperative. Jesus says He must follow me. To be a disciple is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and now follow Jesus. Again, I, you can imagine, what, how were the disciples receiving these words? Will they, who, who just so strongly objected to Jesus' suffering and death, continue to follow Him in light of this new information? Or... Will they be like those at the end of John chapter 6 who when the teaching got hard and the handouts dried up, they abandoned Him? It's worth noting here that the command here to follow Me is in the present tense. And the significance of that is it emphasizes that this is a continuing, ongoing action. We continue to follow Jesus. We don't follow Christ as long as everything's going smoothly and in line with my agenda and my expectations. But if it gets hard, then our response might be, well, I've tried that. I'm moving on. No. If I'm denying myself, if I'm dying to self with the crossbeam on my back, then I'm going to keep following Christ wherever He leads. Is that our mindset in this self-indulgent age in which we live? Is that the the view of uh, our view of the Christian life? It's Jesus' view, and therefore it's the most important one for us. 
Now we might ask the question, well, why, why follow Christ in this radical way, denying self, dying to self? Ideas that run contrary to our, our instincts and certainly contrary to the prevailing approach that we see around us and the message from the world that we hear every day. You might be inclined to say, why should I follow Christ in this radical way? Well, because Jesus brings meaning to my life. That's good. That's true. That's right. I hope you can say that. But your neighbor might say, yoga brings meaning to my life. Or work, money brings meaning to my life. Your Muslim neighbor might say, Allah brings meaning to my life. We might push back and and say the experience of of Christ brings more meaning and more peace. But that but at the end of the day our experience as as crucial as that must be is not the ultimate factor as to why we ought to die to self and follow Christ. The ultimate the final reason we follow Christ with absolute allegiance must be because only he is Lord. Only He is Lord. Yoga, work, money, any other religious figure is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And He's been demonstrating that and proving that through the past eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Let me just remind you, we've discussed this uh, a little bit over the weekend, but here are a few ways that the Gospel of Mark demonstrates Jesus' Lordship, His supremacy. The demons, even a legion of demons, fell before him in submission. And when he commanded them to come out of people, they did, demonstrating he was Lord over them. He demonstrated his authority to forgive sins. And and he illustrated that by his ability to heal a paralyzed man. In fact, he healed many he healed a, a man with a withered hand. He healed a woman who had a disease for 12 years. No one could help her. He healed a deaf man, a blind man. He even, he even raised a girl from the dead, demonstrating that he is Lord over the physical realm, even death itself. Twice he fed thousands. Uh, last night we looked at his, his, him feeding the 5,000. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 8, he feeds 4,000. Uh, with just a few loaves and a few fish, with plenty of leftovers. He walked on water. He um, spoke to a raging storm and immediately it was calm, demonstrating He is Lord over nature. He is none other, as this Gospel has been revealing again and again and in many ways, He is none other than the Son of God, the very Creator who is Lord over all. And that's why we die to self and follow Him. He is Lord. And when the psalmist declares in Psalm 96, verse 5, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He was talking about the Lord Christ. Money can't compete with that. And we're foolish to think that it can. But lest we get the wrong impression, Christ the Lord is not a cruel despot, but He is a loving Master. In this very context, He has already declared that He was going to suffer and die for His disciples. 
This is the kind of Lord that calls us to die to self and follow Him. One who laid down His life for us and died for us so that we might have eternal life in Him. His call holds out for us the the promise that if we lose our lives for Christ's sake, we actually save our lives because Christ is Lord. Following Him is actually what we were made for. And when we trust Him, when we submit to Him, when we follow Him, we find what we were looking for in all those other things. We live for self. Jesus is telling us the truth. We'll lose our lives. But if we surrender to Christ, we will find true life. And that's really the point of uh, the next verses, the reward of discipleship. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? We all want to save our lives. That's a basic human instinct. But like Shirley MacLaine, we think that the way to do that, the way to save our lives, the way to find our authentic self is through elevating ourselves. We think that the key to life is found through following our hearts, pursuing our own agendas, cultivating that solid sense of self. Carl Truman is a Christian historian and he's done a a lot of work recently trying to understand our contemporary culture and how we got to where we are today. And he wrote a very insightful book entitled Strange New World. And in that he speaks of the, the modern self or expressive individualism as key concepts in the mindset of our Western culture. Here's how he describes it. The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings. The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings. And authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inner feelings. He goes on to add... If we are, above all, what we think, what we feel, what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs those thoughts, feelings, or desires inhibits us as people and prevents us from being the self that we are convinced that we are. Again, the spirit of our age. What's the biblical assessment of that outlook? Well, we would have to say it's nothing short of demonic deception. Self is the path to life. Inner feelings are our ultimate authority. But again, Jesus came to deliver us from that, to liberate us from that. And his call sounds radical here because he is exposing the lie for what it is. If you live for the idolatry of self, and that's really what it is, idolatry, you will destroy your life. If you see the self as ultimate and try to hold on to it at all costs, you will lose it in the end. But if you die to self, if you lose your life for the sake of Christ the Lord, 
you'll save it. In trusting Christ and His work, not trusting in yourself and your work or your inner feelings, you will receive and enjoy eternal life, true life. Trying to find our lives in our, in our own desires and, and pursuits never brings us what we're ultimately looking for. And we're slow to learn that. Only losing our lives for Christ's sake do we find life. That's the great paradox of the Christian life of the disciple. Verses 36 and 37 put things in eternal perspective for us. And they also raise the question, a very practical question, for what or for whom are we living? Are we living for everything that we can gain here and now with little thought toward eternity? Jesus reminds us very powerfully here that we can gain the whole world. We might win the lottery and have more money than we know what to do with and yet lose our soul. Think of the parable that Jesus tells in in Luke 12 of the rich fool. You remember the story. The man had so much that he decided to build bigger barns to store all his goods. And Luke 12:19 has the man saying, and, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But verse 20 says, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? I'm sure you're all uh, aware of the uh, story of the missionary martyr Jim Elliott. Jim and his four friends were were killed by the Alka or Warani tribesmen as they sought to bring the gospel to them. What enabled those five young men to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a jungle tribe where death not only was a possibility, but became a reality. It was, in the end, the, provo- the profound conviction that Jim Elliot articulated when he wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says that we must die to self and follow him in order to find true life. And that brings us finally to the warning and destiny of discipleship. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's not popular to identify with the Lord Jesus and his words. Uh, But Jesus never promised us it would be a popular choice. What he did promise is that if we follow him, which includes a willingness to publicly identify with him, publicly confess him, then not only will we find life, but when we stand before the Lord Christ, as all of us will one day, we will not be ashamed of him. We will be thankful to be able to stand in his presence. And most importantly, he will not be ashamed of us. He will welcome us into his eternal presence. But if we choose to follow self, if we, 
if we really want the affirmation of the world, if we don't want to rock the boat or make any waves and we end up, because of that, rejecting the way of Christ, then our passage says we will not have the affirmation of Christ. When He returns in His glory, if we've been ashamed of Him, if we've been ashamed to follow Him and ashamed to identify with Him, He will be of ashamed of us. And so that brings a very important question to us. Who will we stand with? This world, which Jesus very bluntly calls a, a sinful and adulterous generation, Or will we stand with the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is, in fact, Lord? It seems that much of what we might call popular Christianity isn't serious about this call to discipleship. The call of Jesus here is simply left out or ignored or replaced with a watered-down gospel that promotes prosperity and emotional wellness. The concept, the idea of denying yourself and taking up your cross is not part of the, the picture. But if we want to forgo the cost of discipleship, we also forfeit its reward. As the old preacher said, if we will not carry the cross... We shall never wear the crown. What is the crown? We get a glimpse, or at least a hint of it, in chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What Jesus seems to be referring to here is his transfiguration, which is next, which is what is described next in chapter 9. And you'll remember Peter, James, and John were privileged to see this powerful, overwhelming preview of Christ in his coming glory to establish his kingdom. And they saw the glory, the unveiled glory of Christ on that mountain. That's the ultimate destiny of the disciple, to be with Christ, to see His glory, and to share with Him in that. That's the deepest longing of our hearts. Remember Moses' cry, show me your glory. That will be our joy forever if we will follow Christ. The message of our passage has been clear. We must die to self and follow Christ in order to find true life. But let's be honest, that message is a challenging one. And so we ought to ponder and consider Jesus' words very carefully. The cost, denying self, taking up our cross to follow Jesus, seems incredibly high. This call, again, goes against our intuition. It goes against uh, the convictions of our secular culture. But remember, this call comes from Jesus Christ, the one who came to save us from our sinful selves and our twisted world by suffering and dying for us and triumphantly rising from the dead. He's demonstrated that he's not just another religious teacher. He is the Lord from heaven. His words are true and liberating and precisely what we need. 
His call also comes with the offer of reward, precisely what our hearts long for, true life and the glory of God in the kingdom of God forever. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He came to speak truth into our lives and to deliver us from our sinful and fleshly inclinations to to just live for self. Help us to see and to experience the joy and and the freedom that comes through following Him. We pray that, that, uh, again, You would give us eyes to see how great He truly is and how precious of a Savior He is and all that He has done for us out of love that we may experience the joy and peace and hope that can only be found in Him. So thank you for our time in your word this morning, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would press it home to each of our hearts, that we might, even this week, follow our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.